Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Depression and anxiety disorders are rising, affecting more than 58 million people here in the U.S. Therapy and medication are often not enough, which is where the power of food comes in. And we all believe here at MBG that food is medicine. Which leads me to today's guest, our longtime friend, Dr. Drew Ramsey. Drew's a psychiatrist, author, farmer, and an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University. His work focuses on the treatment of depression and anxiety with a combination of psychotherapy, diet, and lifestyle modification. And he's got an amazing new book out called Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, Nourish Your Way to Better Mental Health in Six Weeks. Drew, welcome. Thank you, Jason. It's good to see you again, man. Always great to see you. We go way back. We were fondly talking about our first Revitalize event back in 2014 in, in Arizona, where we used to get together with amazing, like-minded, passionate individuals in, in the world of well-being. And you were at that first event, and we're reminiscing about how amazing it was to get together. But it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. And I was thinking about that tribe you brought together. I mean, that was Robin Burson before parsley had even yeah. launched that was uh that was whitney and danielle before sakara had gone national that was i mean so many people in wellness were thinking and at that event so and you talking about nutritional psychiatry and i was talking about <laughs> nutritional psychiatry way back then and coincidentally mark you know talking about coming full circle that was at the event where mark hyman coined the term pegan and now he has a book, Pegan Diet, as well. And you were talking about this seven years ago. So I like you guys are the pioneers. So well, hearing that from you, mean it means a lot to me. It means a lot to me right now, Jason, is more than ever, uh, people are thinking about their mental health. And more than ever, we're thinking about and confronted with the food we eat. And we're involved with that in a different way. And then you and I, last time we spoke, almost exactly a year ago. And it was just as we were settling into quarantine for the first time. And, and we talked about the potential implications of what was going to happen and now has happened to us. So let's start there. The book is powerful. You pack it with a punch and you start by saying in the book, quote, we're in a mental health epidemic. One in four individuals will be diagnosed with a mental health condition like depression or anxiety over the course of their life. Pretty powerful. And I'll throw in the other stat, which I've referenced before in this podcast in the summer of 20. One in four, approximately one in four young adults, 18 to 24, strongly considered suicide, which is crazy. So suffice to say, we are, it is a huge, we are in a huge mental health epidemic. So I'll start with the big question. I know it's complicated and it's hard to generalize, but how the hell did we get here? Well, we, it's a good question. And we were here before the pandemic and the pandemics made it, it worse. I think there's some clear smoking guns in terms of why we've had an increase in depression and anxiety. And, and I think no matter what we can point our fingers to or place blame on, I think we also probably need to understand that there we're we're learning a lot about things like genetics, epigenetics, inflammation, the microbiome, and there are a lot of people who still are going to get depressed and anxious, even as we improve our diet or exercise or get more mindfulness. I think the main drivers of the depression epidemic, one have been we've had an inadequate system to deal with some of the stressors of modern life that cause or push people into mild or moderate disease. So you're having mild or moderate anxiety and panic. And there's a period where if we intervene or if you just get better naturalistically, right, for you're one of those people that let's say um, a yoga class really works or diet change really works. But for a lot of people that, or some people that, that doesn't help and that those folks then are going to trend into illness. And, and we don't really have, have a great mental health care system here. And so when people do need help, they don't get help. They don't have access to care. So that's one of the ways we got here. The other way that we got here is we have just had a lot of changes in our society. And we have a hard time sometimes in the research exactly proving what's causing what. But we do know that there's been a tremendous shift in diet. We know that traditional diets tend to decrease the risk of depression by between 25 and 50% in most of the epidemiological studies. In a meta-analysis that looked at 17 studies, 
maybe it was 16 studies, Jason, I don't want to get misquoted here, but a number of studies of, of how diet and dietary patterns correlate to depression risk, they found a 19% decreased risk of more traditional style diet. So some of the risk or increased burden of mental health comes from a shift in the modern diet. At least that's how we in nutritional psychiatry think about one of the ways that diet applies to mental health. Put simply, if we change how we eat, we get rid of a new set of foods that seem to be causing a host of illnesses, right? We talk about obesity and diabetes and cancer, but the mental illness part, that's where the real burden, the real disability of illness is for us. Depression is now the top cause of disability in the United States and worldwide. So food has, let's say some percentage, let's say that study's right, it's 19% of depression is from more food. Then we know that there's a sedentary lifestyle piece. Researchers have estimated and shown that if every adult in the world started being more active and had about, they actually calculated it to the minute, and it's about an hour and a half. I wish I remember the exact minute, but about an hour and a half of exercise a week, you decrease the burden of depression worldwide by about 10%. And so you begin to, I guess as a psychiatrist, start to add up these pieces and think about, I'm a clinician. You think about the person sitting in front of you. I think about you, Jason. And it's hard for me not to start asking about your mental health and how are things. And you and I have known each other for a while of, of, of looking for aspects of our lives that we have control over. Sleep is a huge one. Everybody was struggling with sleep early in the pandemic. We all had a lot of anxious insomnia. We all know when we don't sleep, we're more emotional, we're more irritable, we're more moody. I'm super depressed when I don't sleep. It's like, if I wake up feeling like this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call a psychiatrist really soon. And, and then it's like, oh, feel a lot better. So so I would say as we think about those factors of really listening in your life and, and the efforts you make to keep those things well, we also, to Jason's questions, what's causing the mental health epidemic? Those are some of the factors that contribute. Certainly other factors that contribute is we just have some aspects of our culture that we're understanding are more depressogenic. Like for, we watched the movie, The Social Dilemma. There's a wonderful professor, a psychiatrist at NYU who looked at the statistics of things like self-injurious behavior among teens and just finds it, it all got worse right around the time social media launched. And so I think there's some way that we're, it's kind of one of the problems with the paleo mentality is like the paleo didn't have to, the caveman didn't have to deal with the cell phone. And like, I'm not going to get, like, I like mine. I get a lot done with it. I think it's, but there are new stressors of a digital life that, you know, wonderful opportunities that, that the mental health implications of that we're all philosophizing about, but we can all agree they're there. Sure. So the name of the book is Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. It's a bold statement. I believe in the power of food as medicine. I also believe in Western medicine. I know you do too. And I think it's one of the reasons why we connect. I'm an optimist, even though some of those statistics are, are pretty, pretty eye-opening. So can we start by talking about the relationship between food and mental health? In the book, I love how you do this. You talk about the role of nutrients and, and maybe start there, but let's go big, broad, the role of food as it relates to mental health. And then let's go to nutrients. Yeah. And I want to share a little of how I think about food as a psychiatrist, which really begins with nutrients, just what, you know, nutrients are most important for brain health and mental health. All nutrition is important. Every neuron needs lots and lots of fuel and lots of nutrition, but there are certain nutrients throughout history and throughout psychiatry we've just known are important in terms of mental health. When people have low B12, when they have low iron, um, when you don't take in enough magnesium, just symptoms of depression pop up in those populations. And we also know that when we give some of those nutrients, so in clinical trials, if you're doing psychotherapy or you're giving a medication and you add on something like a B vitamin, people get a little better faster. If you add on an anti-inflammatory, and we'll get to this later, people get better a lot faster. And so in my work, I began to think how, uh, one, given we were understanding the diet people were eating was really you know, leading to lots of obesity and diabetes and inflammation, how as a psychiatrist, because I see patients a lot, how can I help people kind of think about what they're eating, what their values as an eater are, and, and what nutrients would be most important for mental health and their condition. And then I guess the biggest step for me is, is I, I guess both a, a guy who grew up on a farm, but also is 
somebody who's very practical is how did that then lead to foods? It didn't feel good to me to be like, great, now take a B vitamin supplement. Because it, it felt like there was this culture, you know, I, I finished medical school in 2000, I finished residency in 2004. And there was a, there's been a kind of culture of people, patients aren't really going to change their lifestyle that much. That's step one, of course. And then you wait for six months, patients come back, and then you put them on step two, which is a medicine. And and that's kind of how there was, I don't know, just like a feeling that, that lifestyle interventions weren't being very effective or embraced by patients. And I think that shifted. And one of the reasons that has shifted is we focus more on food, you know, because that then leads to things you can add into your everyday life. And so nutritional psychiatry is really about how food influences a few things, how it influences brain growth through brain, better brain nutrition, focusing on nutrients that pivot the brain more into a modality of healing, recovery, and neurogenesis when we give the birth to new brain cells, all good stuff. And, and then also kind of puts the brain in a milieu or bathes the brain with all of the nutrients it needs, but also without any of all of the kind of inflammatory factors and high blood sugar and all kinds of junk that tends to be floating around in the modern bloodstream due to a lot of lifestyle choices that we're all making. So I want to take a moment and talk about, you mentioned magnesium, and I'll go back to one of my favorite lines and I, that we had on an old podcast we did where you said magnesium and lithium are right next to each other on the periodic table. And I just want our listeners to sit with that for a moment because you can interpret that multiple ways. In some ways, it speaks to the power of food as medicine. In other ways, it also, I think, destigmatizes taking prescription drugs for mental health. And just sit with And you can choose to interpret it, again, in numerous ways. But I think in your field, in this field that's developing, I think it's very important. Sometimes you need magnesium, iron, maybe that comes in a supplement, maybe that comes in a, the form of food, and sometimes you need a prescription drug. Yeah, I, I always appreciate that you share with people your, your perspective on that, because I think my Buddy Green has been such a um, huge leader in the space of democratizing a lot of this information from the wellness world and integrating it in to what used to be called conventional medicine, but I just want to call it medicine or, or health or, or our quest for all of us to be better. And, and, and it is true. Lithium is a very powerful, life-saving, incredible mineral. Actually, lithium is one of the original, I'm sure I said this in less podcasts, it's one of my favorite things to say. It's one of the original elements that was formed after the Big Bang. And so a lot of times when patients are uncomfortable with lithium, I'll say like, look, I'll tell them that story. And I say like, this is stardust. I don't know why it, it, it seems that it really works and it works in a bunch of different ways, lithium. And I think it's, a, and I just appreciate you emphasizing that part of the book. Eat to be depression and anxiety also wants to try and make the point. And I guess I wanted to be out of the gate before anybody else claimed that all you need to do is eat to be depression and anxiety because I'm a psychiatrist and I treat a lot of patients and I'm very um, honored to do that and humbled by that work. I don't get everyone better or all of my patients better by just giving them like kale or just shifting their diet. Mental health, as everybody listening knows, is super complex. And, and if you're listening and thinking about your own mental health, which we all are right now, I just really want everybody to hear my encouragement to be on that journey. And that's what Eat to Beat Depression is about, is really thinking about how does food affect your mood? How does food affect your mental health and your brain health? What are your values about food? And how can I, as a psychiatrist, kind of help you nudge or nudge you or move you towards those so you're eating, you're really filling your brain, but most importantly, you're filling your soul in a certain way because food is again returned to a point of joyfulness. I love so, it. I love it. And, and, and I didn't want, I just wanted to acknowledge your approach, which I think is such a pragmatic an important approach because you don't want to mess around with mental health is serious. And I think I've joked with people, maybe I've joked with you. If your gut microbiome is sometimes a little off, you can probably get it back. Mental health starts to go, it, it, it's difficult. It's a lot more difficult for those who've ever struggled with their mental health. I want to acknowledge that food, medicine, whatever you need, we're here for you. But we do believe in food and we're going to get back to food because if those numbers are real, 20%, that's a big deal. Well, that's also food has been missing from the conversation is the reason. And, and I think food's also been misrepresented, right? Yes. There's a way that, that for a long time, if you said mental health and food, you just said gluten, period. <laughs> right? And it's like, and like, I got great mental health. Like, can't you tell? Like, I don't eat bread anymore. It's always, that was wonderful because it got, because 
celiac disease is real. Half of people with celiac disease are undiagnosed. And it's a great concrete example of how just changing and cutting out a something that you're allergic to really changes your mental health. The data on how food, let's just talk about the science, because I think so often this is something that feels pie in the sky or people haven't thought about. So the science really matured over this period that Jason and I have been friends. When I first spoke at Revitalize, none of these studies were published. So let me just tell you about a couple of them. Correlational studies, this doesn't prove causation, but they just look at large populations, like 10,000 university students following a Mediterranean-style diet over four and a half years. We like that kind of correlational study because, like, sure, it's correlational, but, man, it's a lot of people over a lot of time. And it found this reduction in depression risk, like 30 to 50 percent of the people who ate most like their grandmothers ate. Their meditatives in Spain, so these more Mediterranean-style diets. And the data holds up really for traditional diets. And then after that, what's gotten exciting and why I feel more confident speaking about this book, I mean, you've known me a long time. I'm always a little bit of a willy-nilly about the data and not wanting to be responsible with the evidence. Well, well we, we appreciate that. We love the data, too, and we love being res responsible with the evidence. Well, we now have a lot of it. I mean, now we're it's hard for, it's hard for me to believe, but we're four years after the first randomized clinical trial came out. The SMILES trial by Felice Jacka, who used a Mediterranean diet to help treat clinical depression, showing a third of those patients go into full remission. And what I love about that study is that's kind of, that's a little like how we want this to look. Like it looks in the brain food clinic. I'm going to give you the full menu of options from psychotherapy to CBT, psychodynamic, um, psychedelic integration, or, or oftentimes and, maybe some medications for either symptom control or because there's been something longstanding. And then, of course, lifestyle integration of how do we think about food and how you move and how you approach mindfulness and how so and that's what the smile study does they added on eight nutritional counseling sessions teaching people the mediterranean diet this is then followed up by a group cooking class study about six months later published so second randomized trial this has then been followed up by a third study the third study looked at uh, individuals uh, these are college students one of the first actually the first ever randomized trial to show an effect and try to utilize diet to help teens in college with a bad diet with their depression they identified these individuals just showed them a video gave them a box of nut butter olive oil cinnamon turmeric and some nuts and, and kind of give some follow-up phone calls, just five minutes, like a week later, like, hey, Jason, how's dorm life, bro? Like, you using the cinnamon? Like, I heard your dorm room smells like turmeric. All right, and just to encourage, you have any problems? You eating a lot of vegetables? All right, great. Five weeks later, you get the same call. What they showed is at three months and at six months, those college students had significantly decreased rating scales of depression, anxiety, and stress. And that wasn't even like a human. That was a video and two phone calls. And and so imagine what clinicians, for example, the clinicians, we have a nutritional psychiatry clinician training. The clinicians who take our course and learn how to really integrate that into their clinical work, where it's not just a video, it's you really encouraging and working with your patients over time, that, that um, we think is really helpful and effective for helping patients with mental health disorders. And so that's how the kind of data matured and why it, it's really important for everybody listening, everybody with a brain to know how to feed it. And, and that's really the, the goal of the book is to talk about some of the ways that we think about how people can get there. So you mentioned the SMILE study. I, I thought that was interesting. I had a different takeaway and it was about red meat. And we often think either side in the book where the big question, do we have to sacrifice heart health for brain health? Because this the SMILE study... Th there is red meat consumption. So can you talk about that? Because I think a lot of people, yeah, you know, look, I don't eat a lot of red meat anymore because of cardiovascular history, history in my family. So like I, I do red meat maybe like, you know, once or twice a quarter, some people thrive on it. Some people don't, but like red meat is a big issue for some red people and others it's not. So let's talk about, do you have to sacrifice heart health for brain health? I don't think so. I would say because heart health, vascular health, and mental health are so intimately intertwined, there's never going to be a diet for mental health that doesn't also improve cardiac health. And I would posit, and I would hope my colleagues in cardiology um, support 
these efforts to improve brain health via nutrition. I, I would say that red meat is one of those co controversial flashpoints. And, and I happen to uh, have actually the first book I wrote, The Happiness Diet, which has a hamburger on the cover. And so this was in the heyday of, of grass-fed beef and of really a revolution in how America was thinking about meat. And I was in with a group of young journalists and, and young butchers at the time. Um, Brian Mayer, who's now the president of the World Butchering Association, was a good friend before he was a butcher back then. And and, and, and Chris Oblanes, who now has a buffalo meat company, was a young farmer at Stone Barn. So I was kind of early in this world with, with people thinking about regenerative agriculture. And also, as a guy from an Indiana farm, this really excited me and appealed to me, this kind of connecting soil and farm health and agricultural food system health with mental health. And so the red meat issue, I think what the problem is, we approach it through a lens of one, looking at the data of the U.S. population that isn't eating the meat. I mean, I've been on a lot of road trips recently, so I've eaten a lot of fast food hamburgers more than I ever would. And there's not a lot of meat in that hamburger. Right? That's all carbs, buns, like bad vegetables, sauces, sugars. And so when we think about like the data on actual meat, I think there's a lot of science that probably still needs to be done. I think how people are eating meat right now is very unhealthy. I think there is some evidence for sure that excessive or high red meat intake, particularly in metabolically unhealthy people, is not a great idea. I think that there's concerns about heme iron, especially in higher doses. I, I think for me, just as a clinician, I found myself having what I felt was the wrong argument and the wrong debate, and one that I found to be very tiring, circular, and polarizing, <laughs> which was the vegan versus meat argument. And I kind of made a very intentional, conscious decision. Somehow I attribute it to you and Rich Roll. I'm not really sure why Rich that is, is. Rich is vegan. I'm not vegan. I know Rich is vegan. And it's, it kind of goes back, but somehow, but it, it, I think it's a little bit about how my sense of rich vibe and how he thinks about controversy and what he spends his time on. And I decided that's not the argument I wanted to spend my time on. And what I really, and, and I appreciate the question, I think you can have a brain healthy diet eating red meat. I think you can have a brain healthy diet not eating red meat. And I think the only person who can decide what that's going to mean for your health is you. And I really hope my book helps people transcend what I think are petty debates that I, I'm tired of having as an eater, butter or no butter. I mean, come on, right? Whether I occasionally have a filet mignon or not, or whether red meat, really carefully sourced red meat, is one of my major proteins. Those are all very personal questions about your genetic history, your values, your very personal of how you want to invest in, in how you think about nutrition. Some people don't want to think about this. They just want to like, they just want to eat. They want to drink Soylent. And I really, as a psychiatrist, try to move away from judgment and into curiosity and encouraging people to consume the foods, at least that I feel the data show us, best support their mental health. Because then that's going to give us the best you. And that's the other way I just was that. It's like if you're eating a ton of red meat and you're a super loving, creative, sharing, energetic, creative person, you're at like operating at the top of the license of human fitness. I think that's awesome. Because I think it adds into our sense of the diversity of how people can find kind of those higher planes of existence. And I've seen people do it on a lot of different diets, I guess is why I have faith in that. Well said. When are you going to run for office and just unite the country? I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure Indiana would ever elect me as a quasi New Yorker, but they're welcome to try. But thank you, Jason. That would be, it would be really, it would be an honor to be the mental health president. <laughs> I don't, and I think that would be a challenge because I think it's easy also, as we said earlier, to say there's not access, there's not a great system. We have a lot of stigma. We have a lot of challenges in terms of our mental health. There, there aren't really easy, obvious, clear solutions. I think they're coming. I think there's going to be this massive transformation around digital mental health and how we encounter, deliver, monitor, and, and prevent um, people who are struggling with their mental health. And, and then I think also how we optimize. I think there's a whole new, it's a whole new sense of that. And I love that because that moves me from like, you don't really get to talk to me or I don't really have any business with you until you're clinically sick because you're a patient and I'm a doctor. And I found that to like that, that, that misses out on the best opportunity in mental health, which is having the foresight to think about the things you're encountering or what you've encountered and to get into the preventive space of doing right. stuff about it. 
So I'm going to bring it back to, to food and specifically nutrients because that, that's the, the, the heart of the book. And, and you have these great illustrations in there. But I would love if you could just quickly like run through the, the key nutrients and, and your favorite food source for, for sure. each nutrient because you got some you good know, foods in there because i think part nothing, of what your approach is like these are actually great foods that like a lot of people can love and enjoy and, and are very yeah, there's nothing weird i mean i think i also wanted to move beyond the kale i'm living beyond the kale as they say jason um the the book focuses on 12 nutrients and the reason i came up with those nutrients was science that i kept getting this question that jason just asked all right which are the good foods and i wanted to say i wanted to to calculate that. And so I partnered up with Dr. Laura Lachance at the University of Toronto, another psychiatrist who's interested in nutritional psychiatry. And we looked in all the literature and found there were 12 nutrients that had the strongest evidence. They influenced depression. They either prevent it in epidemiological studies or in randomized trials, they improve depression outcome. There were 12. There are nutrients like iron, B12, folate, omega-3, fats, magnesium, potassium. And I, I talk about all of them in the book, what they do for your brain health, and then the top food sources of them. And, and then the most important thing about those nutrients is they lead to food categories which are the, the categories that really, if you focus on finding, if you focus on finding nuts you love, if you focus on finding seafood you love, you don't have to be like a kale hero, kale lover, kale like I appreciate it. Maybe kale played out for you. Maybe you're into something like watercress or arugula or, or I mean, there's, I, I got to just put in my plug. The people who are saying, I'm not going to mention any names, that kale are, are toxic or misinformed wrong. Well, it's Dave, it's Dave, our friend Dave Asprey who said it on there. That's his point of view. Gonna, it's it's an gonna, interesting gonna, point of view. I'm going to stay above the front. I'm just going to say, that, I'm just going to say too, that I'm going to say, first of all, kale is the lowest oxalate green. In fact, coffee, let's just say, there's a study that the top source of kidney stones is coffee. I'm not going to... Wait, just, coffee's uh, no good, Drew? You're killing me. No, no, I'm, coffee's fine. I'm just going to okay. say, if you were a person to go after oxalates, for example, you might not want to blame an oxalate, well, low oxalate green. And, and the other is just that kale doesn't contain thallium. That was a scam to undermine me and National Kale Day as we were launching kale in every public school in LA County, we were helping them serve kale to all these children and a rogue journalist published an article about a rogue scientist who found thallium in kale, but he kind of didn't because he doesn't actually have a lab. So, <laughs> hashtag fact check. No names mentioned. Anyway, let's get back to it. So, the great nutrients, what you're looking for then is foods that have a lot of nutrient density. And so all those nutrients are important, but even as Jason's asking me, it's hard to keep them all track for an eater. And so in the book, I created a list of food categories and a plan that kind of guides you through those. And then the power players. And these are just foods that as you kind of look at all the data over the years, they shake out for me both in my own home that I'm big about walking out. This is what I eat. And this is what I recommend. Things like red beans or red peppers. Uh, certainly kale and other leafy greens are on there. But certain seafoods, like um, a lot of people don't have a good anchovy game. <laughs> it's true, right? I didn't. And uh, you laugh, Jason. Tell me, is your anchovy game, you got a little... I, I actually do have a... I, I do love a great Caesar salad with anchovies. So, But that I'm pretty reliant on the Caesar for the anchovy game. So I'm heavily dependent good, actually, on that. There are only 30 recipes in this book and the all-kale Caesar with lots of anchovies. The recipe developer kept saying, like, we can't put in more. I'm like, put in more, put in more. like... People aren't going to like it at first. It's like, okay, we're not going to put one anchovy has 87 milligrams of, milligrams of long chain omega-3 fats. Those are the really important omega-3 fats in terms of the data around brain health. They're very fragile fats, very long fats, and they make up uh, DHA, the longest, makes up about 7 to 8% of the dry weight of your brain. And so these, the, the idea is really to connect these studies to the nutrients, to the food, and then where I try to do a better job in this book, Jason, as a psychiatrist, it's really important to, to me to connect to your individual joy and sense of nourishment. And so this book, probably more than any other... Well, it, I appreciate that, Drew, for me. Well, well thank you. <laughs> I didn't well, know I the mean, book was about me, but... <laughs> well, tell me about that. I'm curious. I mean, how's it hit you, man? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, so 
that, that's really, I think, a, a little bit of, besides the nutrition information, part of what I'm proud to at least put down for the first time, of just to really ask people around their relationship with food. And just to honor that and to think about yourself as an eater that has control around influencing your mental health and your mental acuity through the foods that you eat. And so I'm, I'm curious on a personal level, what are, I, I want to spend a little bit more time on like the power players that you find mm -hmm. that are your staples and that w when you're understood, everyone's an individual, but like you, you tend to go to for people and like, okay, yeah. if you're going to get started, here's what you got to have in the pantry and, and take it from there. Exactly. Like, I don't care really whether you're a pegan or paleo or vegan or keto. It's like, I think pumpkin seeds are great. So let's just talk about nuts and seeds. I really love those as a good snack because they're this nice mix of fiber, fats, protein. I eat that's everything that makes you feel full. Uh, and there's a lot of minerality in nuts and you can get diversity in nuts. And they're also great for our microbiome because they have so much fiber. And so things like cashews, almonds, and, and pumpkin seeds are big players in our house and part of the power players. Olive oil, that's just, I really only buy one fat, which is extra virgin olive oil. And I just douse it on pretty much everything. One reason is monounsaturated fats like oleic acid. Like everybody kind of agrees those are good for you. And there's a nice long-term study looking at that um, in terms of monounsaturated fats and depression risk. So uh, those, those are some of my favorites. In the seafood category, I think that's where people a lot of need, need a lot of work. I didn't eat seafood until well after I was a doctor and I was in psychiatry training at Columbia and I'm living in New York, I'm on a freaking island. And I'm like this Indiana farm boy who like, I can't eat seafood. I'm going to all these nice restaurants and there's all this seafood and it just, I don't know. I just, I wanted to evolve in, as an eater. And now I eat all this stuff. I love bivalves. And I just would encourage people who don't like seafood. There's a lot of different ways to prepare and enjoy seafood. And it's a great protein source, great for your brain. But specific, specifically wild salmon and anchovies, I think are just really great opportunities. Sardines, this is in the book, but it's a great gnocchi with sardine dish. I've been dishing out a lot in our house. And then um, avocados, like every brain nutrition favorite, just because again, real fatty fruit, also unique color. And you don't see a lot of fat vegetables in that way that the brain is made of fat. I kind of have this little rule that, you know, I'm looking for really clean fats or other fats that are going to bring me unique colors or unique nutrients. And so avocados deliver on that. And then dark chocolate, there's like a whole section on dark chocolate in the book. There's a whole illustration about dark chocolate, because I think it really illustrates how perverse we've gotten with food. You, but you say 70 so you say 70 percent dark chocolate yeah i just mainline in the cacao beans i'm going to be on i went to a, a cacao plant um, farm down in costa rica and as a farmer i mean it just was really blown away i think anytime you're eating tree fruits or things that are perennials it's just a really way of having an interesting environmental impact with your diet and these and the cacao pod is this like huge fruit and the seeds are inside wrapped in this jelly and if you ferment them which is what happens next and then dry them in the sun you end up with this like crispy outer shell and uh and it's 100 percent cacao and they're just anybody who a cacao bean or cacao nib uptick in your diet would be the outcome of this podcast in terms of my quest to, to help improve your mental health and mental fitness. Because they're just, they're filled with fiber, they're filled with magnesium, they're filled with iron, and they're filled with phytonutrients. These, uh, they're called flavanols. There are these molecules, we call them antioxidants. They're a lot more than that. So just take the ones from cacao. Those flavanols do all these fascinating, they increase blood flow to the brain. They get involved with the microbiome. They've been shown to improve areas of functioning in the brain if you take a lot of cacao over time that are involved with short-term memory and involved in the areas where neurogenesis, new brain cell growth happens in the brain. So it, it it's... And then I think it just allows us to think about our relationship with food and pleasure. Does dark chocolate need to be your guilty pleasure or your treat? Or like, can it be something that you have for breakfast, like the cacao pancakes in the book? We eat those for breakfast, I don't know, a couple times a week. Chocolate pancakes? I'm coming over. They're chocolate cacao pancakes. So they're a buckwheat pan. It's a great example of brain food. You take a pancake. What is pancake? Sugar. All carbs with a little bit of egg in there, maybe if you're lucky. And what the cacao pancakes are is, I think, trying to illustrate how this works. It's a buckwheat pancake, more nutrient density. There are oats in there. There's cacao nibs in there. There are pumpkin seeds in there. So really nutrient-dense little disc. Let's just say 70% cacao is where you want to be with chocolate. So what if it's 35%? Do you have to eat twice as much? 
to get the same benefit. No, the more, <laughs> unfortunately, there should be no fat. The more you eat of that, just the more sugar. It's just like if it's, if it's under the 70 or 80 percent, it, it begins to not have health. I, 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 had, I, I, I had to try. I had to try. I had to try. You can have some milk. Valentine's Day is coming up. You can have a little milk chocolate hey, if you want. That's, hey, you know. look, what people know from me in this podcast, I, I, I believe, you know, I sort of live by the 80-20. And I believe if you're going to indulge, make sure it's amazing. I, I love a good donut. If I'm going to have donut, I'm getting a donut from the donut plant here in New York City. The best. Well, and it's also like, that's like, what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the know, best. Some donuts in your dietary pattern, it's not going to wreck you. I think that's also one of the things that you and I agree on is this is this wellness journey. I wouldn't say it's a marathon. You can get really rapid benefits without running 26.2 miles and training for six months. You can get benefits tonight by taking some deep breaths and eating better. And But, you know, having a really rich and diverse dietary pattern, including some donuts, it's... But, but I think what happens, it, let's just say you go out and have a bad donut and you're like, okay, I just had a bad donut. It wasn't even that good. So I feel bad about that. Then you feel bad because of the blood sugar crash. And then it's just like, and then... I, I would you, argue it's you bad for with, your mental health. It's like well, you bad. End up with nothing, right? You end up with yeah. nothing. You just have low blood sugar as opposed to like I had a decadent experience. Yeah, and versus like this pointing out like if you're gonna do it well, it's like yeah. if you're gonna go out on a Friday night and drink, have really high quality drinks. Don't do that a lot, but if you do it, you know, try and do, do it. it well. Right, <laughs> right. It, it's a good point. And then I, and I think that the part over there is also doing things you enjoy. I mean, I hope what people sense in all of my work is really. I've just gotten fatigued with the, f I know it works better to scare people, I guess, I guess, I can say <laughs> that, but like, that's never really appealed to me as a person or as a therapist or as a motivator. I, I just, I, I think it, it is too hierarchical for me because it, pre it presumes that I know that these are the right foods for you. And what I really want to challenge people is to know themselves, to look at this data, to consider this. And I hope to agree with the data that everybody kind of intuitively knows what you eat really affects your perception, how you feel, how anxious you are. I mean, I think everyone's experienced that. But to really find your your to find the way that nourishing yourself is most helpful for you and your mental health and your mental fitness. That's what I hope people feel encouragement for. I, I love it. I think we can all get behind that. And now I'm going to, let's get a little nerdy because I think there's some great, you talk about thinking beyond serotonin with BDNF. So can you give our audience a primer on BDNF and why it's critical? Yes. BDNF stands for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And neurotrophic basically means kind of neuron growth. And so this is a molecule that scientists found in the brain, and it helps brain cells do a number of things. BDNF helps brain cells reach out and make more connections to other brain cells. And this is really the foundation of our brain. Our brain is an organ of connections. And so having more brain cells, having more brain cell connections, having brain cells that can be more resilient um, and survive things like stress and toxins, BDNF is involved in all of those processes. And I think it's a really interesting molecule to kind of make your favorite brain molecule because it moves us away from serotonin based thinking and serotonin fascinating molecule i tickle serotonin all the time with my interpretations and and prescriptions and and i hope my foods but serotonin it kind of gets thought of as happiness the happiness molecule and it's much more the homeostasis molecule I mean, serotonin is involved in in memory sex drive weight gain appetite i mean all kinds of things and it's kind of a functional molecule just like dopamine and these other neurotransmitters. BDNF is a neurohormone. I think about it in a whole other category because it's really kind of overseeing and, and, and helping maintain a, a kind of different level of brain function. And so that's why I think BDNF is exciting. Another reason is food relates to BDNF. One of the reasons I'm a fan of nuts is there's only one study ever that's looked at blood levels of BDNF in food. And it found, it was an intervention where they gave people olive oil or nuts. And they found in the nuts group, there was this kind of surprising protection that there just weren't a lot of people in the nut group with a, what's called a severely low level of BDNF. And it's not perfect science. BDNF is not like a great blood marker for depression, but it's just one of these pieces we're seeing from the science that, that really interests me. And as we're going to learn, the key to maintaining mental health and fitness, and particularly cognitive health and fitness, is going to be maintaining a good number of neurons and good neural connections over time. And that means decreasing 
you know, the headwinds to that, inflammation, toxins in your diet, but mostly inflammation, decreasing stress, and increasing neurogenesis and neuroplasticity via things like BDNF. So you mentioned neuroplasticity, and you talk about that, and growing new brain cells. So how do we grow new brain cells? You're like, all right, so in the morning, wake up, like first thing, you really close your eyes, deep breath through the left nostril. So the way you grow new brain cells is the way you grow anything. I mean, maybe this is my, maybe I'm interested in growth and growth mindset in part because I'm a farmer. How do you grow anything? You've got to have the right nourishment and nutrients. You've got to have the right soil and water and sun, and it can't be too hot or too cold or too wet or too dry. And it, it's, I, I think growing new brain cells or neurogenesis, for us individuals in our daily life, it's kind of helpful to think about it that way. The things you do in your everyday life really do make a difference. It, it happens deep in the hippocampus in the center of the brain is the main area that this happens. And neurohormonal signals like BDNF give rise to neurogenesis. So you have stem cells in the brain and they transition from stem cell into new neurons. It's really, it's reasonably new science. I mean, it's more than a decade old, but when I was a medical student, I, I finished medical school at Indiana University in the year 2000. And you didn't learn this. What we learned was you get 90 billion neurons, that's it. Don't mess up, don't party, watch the Nancy Reagan ad a few more times. <laughs> like, really, seriously, you don't get any more brain cells. Good luck. And it was a little terrifying because you just kind of thought, wow, like these things are dying every day and I'm going to run out maybe no matter what you do. And so neurogenesis is, is exciting. And I think it also makes sense to us when we see those inspiring stories of people in their 50s and 60s and 70s who learn new language or I had a woman in my medical school class, Serena, and Serena was in her late 50s in medical school. I mean, she's learning to be a doctor. And so, and all of that is neurogenesis. That is new brain connections, new brain cells. And so it inspires us when we see it. So how do we do it? I'm ready to grow well, some new brain cells here. All right. So how do you improve BDNF? So, so you increase neurogenesis in a few ways, according to science. Uh, one way is we think through diet. Another way is through exercise and movement. It's more than those endorphins flowing through your brain that feel great. There's also data that, that BDNF and exercise are, are interrelated. You do it by improving sleep hygiene. Those aren't so surprising to people. Some of the surprising ways that people can improve BDNF, one, are medications. Some antidepressants are shown to do that. People are really surprised a lot of antidepressants because it's one of the other reasons I want to get away from serotonin. Sure, they bind to serotonin. But antidepressants also can induce BDNF and also are anti-inflammatories. And when we begin to get rid of stigmatization, right, like meds are evil and instead really think that this is complex. I want every arrow in my quiver when I go into battle against depression and anxiety and so do you. It's fascinating to think that some of these meds, things like I'm pretty sure lithium induces. Yeah, lithium induces BDNF by the same way magnesium does. There's this really complex slide I have in my slide deck that sort of shows all of the various factors that turn on BDNF. And so the, the ones that are in your life, people are easily recognized and I think often are couched as, you know, kind of our tenets of good wellness. Let's eat well, let's move our bodies, let's have mindfulness in our lives, um, let's eat to beat depression and anxiety. All those foods sound great to most people listening, right? But I, I, I hope people really feel empowered about what, that means that it's not cliche wellness advice, that it really leads to an enhancement of your greatest asset, your brain, all of your creativity. It enhances or improves the, the chances that you're going to have more optimism and more hopefulness and more creativity. And, more, and, and more, most importantly, I think, as a psychiatrist, more connection in your life. I really I hope that's what happens. So it, it, we, serotonin has come up numerous times. I'm curious. A lot of people use sleep aids. What's the correlation with melatonin, you know, as a, as a sleep aid and like mm -hmm. with regards to serotonin in terms of mental health, not like getting the getting, getting your body ready to go to sleep? I remember how surprised and embarrassed I was when I think it was after my training, I learned that melatonin comes from serotonin. I guess I must have learned that in residency, but it just, it just really didn't drive over in the pineal gland. We turn serotonin into melatonin. And I think it's just an interesting, uh, I don't know, for everyone to know, those molecules are so closely related. And that melatonin isn't just, like, like serotonin isn't just about happiness. Melatonin isn't just about sleep. 
melatonin is really intimately involved in energy metabolism and regulation. There was actually just a trial of daytime melatonin for migraines that was a positive trial. Melatonin only puts about a third of people to sleep, which is so the majority don't fall asleep. If it was a medicine, everyone would hate it. But because it's a quote unquote natural thing, it is everyone's favorite natural soporific agent. And, and I think it's generally overdosed. That people are dosing melatonin five milligrams, ten milligrams, and I, I just keep thinking like, you've got a Ferrari, and you're like, you're just like pouring like gas and oil like on it, like yeah, fuel it up. It's like, it's just like your brain. Like if if you're having trouble sleeping, sure, try a little melatonin. Maybe it'll help you, but don't just like pour it on there like it's not a powerful molecule just because you got it. I don't know from. Uh, as a recommendation or, or I don't know, it just, it, it concerns me that people sometimes don't treat their brain with the respect it res deserves and just feels, if you forget everything you put in your mouth, your body has to deal with, your brain has to deal with. So milligram, three milligrams, probably fine. But if you start to really push the upper limit, probably not so good on a consistent yeah, basis. I once had a woman, uh, a young woman come see me for consultation. The complaint, she was actually still in high school. Her mother brought her in because she was drinking like five and six cups of coffee a day. And the cause was she was taking 10 milligrams of melatonin every night. Whoa, that's a lot. And, and so it, it, it's, so I think sleep's super important and melatonin can be helpful for people. And for those of you who are taking three milligrams of melatonin and it's working great, that's wonderful. I, I just think that what Jason is speaking to in some ways is how anxiety and depression really disrupt sleep. And it's one of, as anybody who's suffered with those um, symptoms and, and syndromes knows, it's what, the worst part. I mean, that's definitely when I'm struggling with my mood. That's the worst part. Oh, the worst part is like 4 a.m. The Uggs, I call it, where you like wake up to go pee and then you're like, okay, let me just imagine every bad thing, feel bad, it's horrible. And, and meanwhile, I'll be rationalizing. I'm in the middle of the night. I know that I this isn't true, but... It's no sleep is tough. Yeah, I, Colleen and I both were wearing our aura ring, and uh, you and got one too. And, and, yeah. and look, you there's a saying: you manage what you measure, and, and it's helpful. And you can experiment to see what works and what doesn't work. And I, we also joke: it's like when you have a bad night, you don't need a reminder. You know, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's true, but in uh, in psychiatry, we put it that the the first step in changing behavior is observing behavior, and so that it's a good example. You can do that with sleep, with food, with exercise. But the the more that you can set simple goals and and have some metrics and and have a plan. I mean, I think the part that I hope people hear in my work is. What's less important to me is the details of whether you love kale or whether you're a carnivore or whether you're down with organ meats or not or red meat. I mean, I'm curious about that as an individual. But on a kind of public health standpoint, what's most important to me is that you're really oriented towards the new data of how to feed your brain, how your brain and your gut relate and the importance of gut health and, and how there are foods that have more nutrients per calorie than other foods. And that we, if you construct a diet out of these based on traditional principles, the evidence suggests it's really, it's beneficial long-term for the brain. So my last question, as you've mentioned, the field of nutritional psychiatry has come a long way and we still have a long way to go. So I'm curious, where is this conversation gonna be a year from now, five years from now? Anything interesting in terms of science studies you're paying attention to that are happening or will happen? What's the future? I think, in the future, you and I are going to be talking about a next-in-class mental health clinic. That's a combination of digital access to top-in-class clinicians and information and science. So there isn't a delay between what we're learning about things like nutritional psychiatry and the microbiome and the genetics of mental health. It's not a delay in people getting that. And I think there's going to be a complete revolution in how we think about mental health. I think that one of the most exciting developments that's happening as we're getting more woke as a society and a culture and a country is that everybody is starting to talk about mental health. And there's no upside to this pandemic, but you and I are allowed to and, and encouraged, even as men, right, to, to talk about our anxiety and our feelings and connect with one another and have community that's new. And I'm really excited about that. I think there's going to be this increasing mixture of wellness and, and healthcare. And I think we've seen the, we've really seen the first good example of that at the Cleveland clinic with Mark, where he has a functional medicine clinic. And what's exciting about that is functional medicine is still really a, a theoretical model, but 
until we start to test, until we start to have conversations, until we try to disrupt the model that we have that doesn't address prevention and it doesn't address parts of our health that we know are really missing, I think we're still going to have this mental health epidemic where we really, you started the conversation. And so I hope that there is radical rapid change because without that, we're still facing a huge suicide epidemic. It's going to be over 70,000 people die by suicide this year. I would guess the numbers are at least. Same thing with overdose. Those numbers are really going up now in the pandemic. And it, it, it's, it's not something like COVID numbers that you want to see a slow decline in. And it's not going to be the silver bullet of a new medicine or a new breakthrough discovery about depression. I think it's going to be all of us really shouldering this together and employing the interventions that we know we have that work and, and then doing a much better job making sure that everybody who needs them is getting access to them. Amen. It is uh, it's a tough time out there, but you know I, I'm optimistic. I know you're optimistic. Thank you for all the great work you're doing. Congratulations on the book. It's incredible. And uh, as always, I have fun talking to you. So we'll do, we'll, we'll do it again soon. Thanks, Jason. I really look forward to that next conversation. And I hope everybody listening just feels really encouraged by me and by Jason and by the whole Mind Body Green family and community to take care of your mental wellness and your mental health. And I hope you'll check out the book. And I hope some of those power players find their way onto your plate. And, and Jason, thanks so much, man. It's really always nice to have a conversation with you as a touchstone and as, as I don't know, the, the, these things develop and, and projects happen. I always look forward to telling you about them and you seeing them. And it really means a lot to me that you have the book and, and that the book makes an impact on you. And I really I just want to say thanks. It's really great to see you, man. Well, thank you. The feeling is mutual and congratulations. As Drew just talked about in this very podcast, food plays a huge role in our overall well-being and food is medicine and can play a huge role in supporting our mental health. Our functional nutrition coaching program gives you access to 19 of the world's top doctors and health coaching experts over nearly 30 hours of instruction. These experts will give you a solid foundation in all things functional nutrition and will teach you how to build, brand, market, and expand your wellness business. Today is the day to align your passion and purpose with your career. Take the next step and enroll in our landmark functional nutrition coaching program. Visit mindbuddygreen.com slash coaching and enter code DREW300 to get $300 off.